Okay, we are starting in our passage today in Romans chapter 11. Who gets to be my handout person? You want to be my handout person? Oh, you want to be my handout? Go ahead. <laughs> Whenever I come to these sections of scripture that are declared being difficult, um, I always have to wonder, well, why is this particular passage declared as such? And I wrote some preliminary thoughts that I wanted to express to the group before we get into the text itself. And I wrote this, I spent more time thrashing around chapter 11 of Romans than I anticipated. <laughs> Yeah, well, now I understand even more why I avoided teaching this chapter before. In fact, I have a folder of past times that I have taught Romans, and my teaching notes on chapter 11 start with verse 33, which is the benediction and the good stuff, and I skipped all the rest. So. You wonder, well, why? That's kind of obvious. We just read it and we just figure it out. Well, here's some of the issues. A huge question many commentators and expositors try to answer is whether or not in the last days, in your eschatological understanding, your understanding of the end times, the return of Christ, of whether or not there is a place for ethnic Israel the Jewish nation in God's final plan. The argument extrapolated starts in Romans chapter 11 and ends up with whatever conclusion they render. Let me read to you a portion of a transcription. The transcription unfortunately was done by a computer. So um, I have a, a, a subscription to a a program called otter.ai, artificial intelligence. And I can put in an MP3 and it spits out a, a transcription that's a complete mess. But at least it's the general way and it allows me the ability, because I can speed read, more so than sitting and listening to someone that I may or may not extrapolate one or two sentences and then I can't remember what was said. This way I can come back and underline something. Well, there's a teacher named Kim Riddlebarger who is with uh, Whitehorse Inn, if you are familiar with that organization, uh, Michael Horton and uh, Core Christianity. And in his um, lecture or his sermon, I don't know which it was, I think it's a sermon because it said it was done in a church, but wow, if that's what he's preaching, they're getting a theological education in their Sunday morning services. Um, he has this lecture trying to summarize a particular viewpoint on this passage regarding the end times. Okay, so just bear with me here. It must be pointed out that those, that even those, I'm sorry, it's got to start in a different part. <clears throat> now, one popular interpretation many of us that were raised on is dispensationalism. <clears throat> the dispensationalist 
view, I'm quoting now, in Romans 11, is shown that God has taken the nation of Israel out of the place of blessing temporarily, but will restore them to that place of blessing when his plan for the church is terminated. Well, what does that mean? It, no, just, just, this is the kind of stuff I'm running into and I'm studying this. Just, we'll just, I'm just going to read it and you go, oh, sure, I understand. Um, it is believed that after the rapture, when the Gentile churches are removed from the church and the seven-year tribulation begins, God is going to go back to dealing with the nation Israel once again. They also believe that when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, Israel's hardness of heart is taken away. And the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy begins when God returns to dealing with Israel now that the Gentile church has been taken off the earth. And so, for the dispensation is the future, uh, the future for all Israel is described in Romans 11, supposedly guarantees Israel place in the kingdom of God as well. So, following the covenantal promise of a land that God made to Abraham, and so that's why dispensations look to the land promises made to Abraham as still applying to the nation of Israel, as well as supporting their contention for the necessity of a future millennial kingdom. And that's why dispensationalism so ardently defends the proposition that national Israel has a future in God's economy against those amillennials who do not see a future role for Israel. Got it? Sure. Just, just repeat it back to me. Okay, that's one view. But then he goes on. He says, however, those who may not um, ascribe to dispensationalism disagree among themselves of whether or not Israel has a future place in redemptive Israel. It's redemptive history. Some say Israel does have a role, names like Gerhardus Voss, among others, while some say there's no place for ethnic Israel in the future, and that would include John Calvin and William Hendrickson and Anthony Hoxima, etc. Neither camp sees the issue as determinative of someone's millennial view. Now, once, well, some post-Holocaust Jewish writers, as well as certain evangelicals, have argued that denying a distinct future for ethnic Israel or acquitting the church with Israel arises an inherent form of anti-Semitism. But if we can show from this text that all Israel refers to the full number of the elect, as Calvin argued, or refers to the sum total of true Israelites, this believing remnant and, and not to nation, national Israel, while the case for dispensational premillennialism is certainly weakened, but on dispensational presuppositions, you can prove a future for national Israel. You um, supposedly prove the premillennial term uh, for the millennial kingdom itself. And what further made it more complicated is in 1948, Israel became a nation. Okay. This is where I was starting my study of this. And I'm sitting here going, holy smoke. What kind of thing have we unleashed here? Because you read the passage, you don't get any of that. This is all added to the interpretation because we're attempting to try to figure out well, does God have a plan for Israel or not? So I wrote here, 
Many teach that God is finished with Israel and all the Old Testament promises are now directed to the church. We are the new Israel. That's another interpretation. So, this is my quote in my notes. Do I dare teach this? (laughs) Do I dare teach either pro-Israel or anti-Israel? Am I an anti-Semite if I land on one side or the other? So what I'm going to try to do here is teach the text as it is written. Smart, smart. smart idea, right? Now I and I, I and I'm confessing and writing this out. It says I may slide here and there with interpretation, so bear with me. I may even contradict myself, which you might have fun pointing out. <clears throat> The bottom line is, this text is very important our understanding of God and God's plan. And so we're going to spend three weeks on it. We're not just going to try to cover all 36 verses today. That would be impossible to give it its due. Today is verses 1 through 10, which you have in front of you. Next week will be verses 11 to 24. Then the 12th, I believe, is the Saints Alive. So we will not be meeting for our class, but there will be another meeting here, uh, which you may want to attend. And then on February 19th, we will finish off chapter 11. So, you might go, wow, that's that's an awful lot. Are you really going to dive into that? Somewhat. But you can see how... The question, because when I talked about our introduction to 9 to 11, I was kind of hinting that we were headed here. Because the question is, where does Israel fit in God's plan? I had an interesting talk with Philip and his family's background. And I'm probably going to misrepresent it, so correct me if I'm wrong. But your family was in Jerusalem. And when did they leave? 1960? No, 1948. 1948, when Israel was established because of the frustration as Arabic Christians with the Jews being put and um, basically kicking people out. And then they moved moved to Beirut, if I'm correct. So you have that question of the Christians who were misdisplaced by a political action, then you have, of course, this is goes, shows you how far my own questions go, is, is that, all right, yeah, we, we grow up, we grew up, we're the first generation. We sitting in this room are the first generation of people that have always had Israel as a country. The last time Israel was a country was 600 A.D., So all of the commentators, all of the scriptural interpretation of scripture did not have a nation, Israel, to point at. So John Calvin is writing in, you know, 1600s, 1500s, and he's writing about all this stuff. Well, he didn't have an Israel. They just come out of the Crusades just a couple hundred years earlier. So you have that tension going on. 
And then we look at, and I can say this very plainly, we look at Israel now and are they a religious nation or are they a political nation? Yes. <laughs> you know, there's a religious component, but is it what drives the country? Because it's not a pure theocracy. No, it's not theocracy at all. No, there is no theocracy on earth. And then you have just the recent issue of a minister from the Jewish nation, from Israel, going to pray in the Dome of the Rock, creating all sorts of mess, and then the United States come in and condemns that, which is the first time the United States went against something that the Israelites had done in that, ha, huh. and then we come to Romans, and you go, wait, it, is Israel part of the church? Is it not? Does it matter? Yeah, if you expect me to answer that question, <clears throat> that ain't going to happen. But we can look at the text, and you can uh, make your own determination as God leads you, but there are certain things we must ask when we come to this text. And I'm going to start with a preliminary question before we even read verse 1. Do you believe that God is trustworthy? Okay. Do you believe that God is faithful? Yes. Okay. Do you believe that God keeps his promises? All of them. For all time. Yes. Alright. Joshua 24, 14. You know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed for all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. 1 Kings 8.56, Solomon writes, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel, according to all he has promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise. Jesus says in John 17 that your word is truth. Paul reminds Titus that God cannot lie. Titus 1 verse 2. God made a covenant, a promise to the people of Israel. First through Abraham, Genesis 12. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. In Genesis 13, 14 to 16, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. Arise and walk through the length and breadth of the land and I will give it to you. you say, well, that's well and good. That's the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Hebrews chapter 6. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, attained a promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. 
so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner peace behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Guess what was preached about today? I mean, I pointed it out to Lisa, I looked one. And I think, I'm going to be reading this in the class. This is amazing. And then all of chapter 7 is about Jesus being the high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. All from Psalm 110. Ha, I love it when that happens. But that promise, that statement, connects the Old Testament to the New, connects the Old Testament covenant to the reality of Jesus and then you go back to Jeremiah the famous Jeremiah covenant passage Jeremiah 31 verse 31 and through 33 make sure I have the right passage before I start reading uh, let's see 31 31 Okay. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Does God keep his promises? And we all said, sure, yes. Hmm. He's promising this to whom? The Jews, the people of Israel. But the Jewish people stumbled over the stumbling stone, which we saw in chapter 10 of Romans 9 and in Romans 10, 21, the last verse before we read today's verse, it says, but of Israel, God says, all day long have I held up my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. And thus we start chapter 11, verse 1. Again, the handout is set up in a kind of a poetic form, for lack of a better term, so that you can see the structural um, organization of the sentences. Um, if you look at it in your Bible, it's just one solid paragraph. But it starts with a question. I ask then, has God rejected his people? Now remember, there's no chapter breaks in the New Testament Greek. It goes from, but of Israel, he says, all day long have I held up my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Or people, I ask then, has God rejected his people? 
And Paul rather emphatically says, no. This is the most emphatic way to say, no way, not in a million years, uh uh-uh, stop talking. No, absolutely there's no way. And then he gives why. And he starts with his resume, which isn't that kind of the beautiful thing is that if you have God in your heart and someone says, how can you believe something so silly? You can stand up and go, this is what God has done for me. The testimony, when you're talking to someone who's trying to poke holes in it, and you could just simply say, um, you can't tell me this didn't happen to me. You can't. You can call me deluded if you like, but I know what I know. And he doesn't start with his conversion. He starts with his birthright. He says, I'm a Jew. I'm an Israelite. In other words, if the promises to the Israelites are rejected, then he rejected me, but he didn't reject me. I'm the one writing this passage. I was born in Tarsus of Sicilia and raised in Jerusalem and studied under Gamaliel. That's part of his testimony in Acts 22, verse 3. He's a descendant of Abraham. There's no question of his lineage, but then he says he's a member of the tribe of Benjamin. You might go, so what? Well, to a Jew, if you remember our history of the Old Testament, at one point, the northern kingdom split from the southern kingdom. You had ten tribes go into the northern kingdom. They were eventually wiped out by the Assyrians. And they never really came back. They were just gone. The two remaining tribes were Judah and Benjamin, who is the most famous person in the Old Testament out of the tribe of Benjamin? Saul. Saul. The first king was of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, he didn't end up doing, didn't do real well at the end, but he was originally chosen out of the tribe of Benjamin as the king. There is a history here that's meaningful. So I have a question before I carry on. I I wrote this in my margin. I thought, huh, I never thought of it this way. When Paul was on the road to Damascus, did he convert to Christianity? Because Christianity didn't exist. So what did he convert to? He was still Jewish. He saw Christ as the fulfillment of the Jewish promise. When you think about that, this is what Paul's trying to communicate to these Roman churchgoers, which is a mix of Gentile and Jewish people. But he's trying to say to them, Christ is the fulfillment of the law. It makes it greater. 
than the law that we see here. So Paul didn't become a Christian. He didn't invent Christianity either. In fact, when you talk about, when you look in the, uh, the early church, it, the followers were called the way. And the word Christian, Christian, Christ follower, kind of just kind of grew out of that. It wasn't a belief system that Paul went, huh, I see the truth over here, and he came over to it. No, he saw Judaism. He saw his Jewishness as the truth. And so for him to say, I'm an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Oh, hooray, we just stepped on foreknew, yay. Um, Here we go, predestination. Uh, God's divine sovereignty, man's responsibility. Um, Oh, well, didn't we just do that last week? Do I have to talk about it again? Yes, I do, because it's right here. God has not rejected his people, the Israelites. He's holding on to that promise, and he's known about it from the beginning. I wrote here, God's plan, God's design before time was even created. We still struggle with this concept of foreknew because we think in our human mannerisms, if I know what's going to happen before it happens, then I can change my behavior to match the end. Well, wait. So if you knew, I mean, it's the whole fun thing about science, time travel and science fiction. Back to the future. You know, if you could go back in time and invest in Microsoft. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I was looking at, I, I actually did this. I went into the Microsoft stock um, chart and looked at its beginning. And because of the stock splits over time, that initial share was worth 10 cents. It's now worth $230 or something. So if you bought a million shares at 10 cents, you'd be doing okay now. And you would have known when to sell your Tesla stock. (laughs) Sorry. You would have known when to do, but no, you wouldn't. See, that's the irony of the foreknowledge. We put it in our human terms, and then we start going, but then that takes away human agency that we had no choice because God had already predetermined that I'm going to sit in that chair in 35 seconds. Hmm. I've just made a declaration. Am I going to choose or not? Or will God determine that? I'm watching the clock. (laughs) And you're watching me. Is he going to? Is he actually going to sit there? I don't know. Does it matter? No, it doesn't. So I'm not going to. I choose not to. God didn't force me to do that. But that, you see, 
We get all tied up into our attempt to be God, don't we? We want to be and have that power. Revelation 22.13, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He was there before the beginning. He's going to be there after the end. Psalm 90, verse 2. God is from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. Psalm 145.3. His greatness is unsearchable. So I actually thought of it this way. There's a picture of it. And for those of you who are trying to listen to this later, I am um, drawing on the board a gravestone. Mm -hmm. And you see someone's name, and you see the year that they were born, and a dash, and the year they died. Okay, that's how we determine time. <coughs> For one thing, God isn't dead, so we can't put him in a gravestone. But for God, he's the dash. He sees the dash because he's all the way out here and he's all the way out here. This dash is our entire timeline from the moment of Genesis 1-1 to the end of time. It's just a little blip in eternity. And we try to think that we can be like that. We cannot foreknow. God has not rejected His people who He foreknew. He chose the people of Israel very early. And He promised to make them His people. They tended to uh, resist sitting in the chair. And they still do. And he goes on. He says, don't you know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appealed, appeals to God against Israel? And you're going, uh, I'm biblically illiterate. No, I don't. I don't know who that Elijah guy is. <clears throat> Do you happen to see the lyrics of the song that was sung today? It was from the musical, musical, the oratory of Mendelssohn from Elijah. <laughs> I just, I'm just going, oh, come on. <laughs> you know, how in the world that we're going to be referring to Elijah and they're singing these lyrics, he is watching over Israel, slumbers not nor sleeps. Shouldest thou walking in grief languish, he will quicken thee. I'm not saying that's scripture, but it's based on it. So to understand this, <clears throat> now we see, you see in your text that he's quoting from 1 Kings 19 and uh, both 10, 14, and 18 verses. But to really understand this, you have to go to 1 Kings 18. So if you want to flip in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 18. Sorry, Kings, not Corinthians. 1 Kings 18. We get one of the great stories in the Old Testament. Now, 
<laughs> I actually thought of this this morning. I thought, is this one of the top ten most famous dramatic incidents? I went, wait, what am I doing ranking them? Why don't we just put it in the Hall of Fame? This is an extraordinary story. But Romans isn't quoting from verse 8, from chapter 18. But you have to understand chapter 18 to understand the quotation afterwards. So you have King Ahab, bad king. Bad, bad king. Just, just vile. <clears throat> and he's in the northern kingdom. So this is before Assyria has come down and destroyed everything. <coughs> And uh, verse 17, Ahab saw Elijah. Ahab says to him, is, is this you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel. You have, and your father's house, because you've abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's ta table. Who's Jezebel? Well, Je Jezebel is Ahab's lovely wife. Um, she is a priestess of Baal. And you say, well, so what's the big deal? You know, what, what's, what's Baal? Um, Baal was a Phoenician god. Uh, so they would be out of the uh, western side of Palestine. And was one of the, let's just say, more... Uh, ungodly gods that was followed in this period of time. In fact, Jeremiah chapter 19 verse 5 says that it got to the point where the Baals would sacrifice their sons on the altars. So this isn't Molech, that's different. This is Baal. But Baal was very prominent. Very prominent. And the fact that these priests of these prophets of Baal and Asherah would eat at the queen's table. Now imagine having dinner for 850 people in your house. Constantly. You are treating them as royalty, as guests, as honored individuals. Elijah didn't eat at the king's table. All of the anti-God prophets did. So, challenge accepted. Ahab sends to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets at Mount Carmel. Elijah came and basically challenges him. You know, which one are you going to follow? God or Baal? Let's have a contest. Uh, I actually found one sermon called it Cage Match at Carmel. <laughs> I thought, okay, that's vivid. Uh, but it's a sense of what's going on here. You have the challenges that they're going to sacrifice a bull. And then the priests and the prophets are going to call fire down from heaven from their gods to destroy or consume the, uh, the, the sacrifice. And then Elijah going to prepare another one, and then he will do the same, but he lets them go first. 
Now, from what we can figure, they started at dawn. And they began praying and dancing and calling out, Baal, answer us. You see that in verse 26. And there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the, the altar that they had made. At noon, so six hours later, Elijah mocked them. Cry aloud. He's a god. Either he's musing or he's relieving himself. Okay. <laughs> now you're just trash talking here at this point. Um, maybe he's on a journey or he's asleep and he has to be awakened. And they, they got more enthusiastic. They begin to cut themselves to the point that they were bleeding and blood is gushing out of them in their antics and their ability to try to hear or force their God to answer. Now, I'm going to stop here for a second. And I've relayed this story before um, of a, obviously not quite as dramatic, but an experience I had in high school in Honolulu where we visited a Buddhist temple. It was part of our class on world religions. So we visit this Buddhist temple and you see all these Buddhas, icons, everywhere, statues, everywhere. And these apparently represented the um, ancestors of the families who attended this temple. And the, uh, I saw this woman over on the side. She had a kind of, for lack of a better description, a Pringles can. So it wasn't a Pringles can, but it was shaped like that. And there were sticks in it, and she's shaking it vigorously until one of them fell out and there were markings on the end of the sticks Japanese markings and she picked it up shook her head put it back in <laughs> she was waiting for she was trying to get the right answer then they would burn an incense for this prayer and then hit a gong to wake up the god so that when the smoke got there, they would answer. That was the ritual. And I'm just, what in the world? This seems so foreign to me. But of course, you grow up in that, and it's very natural. And it, you, you want to say, hmm, Elijah sees this an these antics and kind of going, oh, come on, you got to wake him up? Maybe he's asleep. Then... They basically went on and on till around three o'clock. Then Elijah says to the people, come, come over to my altar. And because it's, it's dried out and it probably would just be quick tinder, let's pour water on it. And let's pour more water on it. Let's saturate this. And if you have ever tried to light something that's wet, it doesn't cooperate real well. Then he prays and boom, the water, the, the, the entire sacrifice is burnt up in flames and it says here in verse 39, all the people saw this and fell on their faces and said, Yahweh, he is God, Yahweh, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. They seized them. Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them. 
Um, all, all you can imagine, the cacophony of, we don't know if it was the 450 or all 850 of them, they probably didn't go quietly. This is not a pleasant experience. This isn't a, oh, we're going to lay you off. We are going to, uh, we're just going to, we don't need your services any longer. This is a, we are going to destroy you. We are killing you. Then you have, you figure after something like this, a great revival would break out in Israel. And Elijah would be at the forefront of a complete change of the people. Instead, chapter 19, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he'd killed all the prophets with the sword, the ones who used to be at her table. And Jezebel sends a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one by them this time tomorrow. And he was afraid and he ran for his life. He went down to Beersheba. This is a very remote area. They can't find him. He's now a day's journey even further than that. And he says in verse four, Lord, take away my life. I'm no better than my father's. He lay down and slept. And an angel touched him and said, eat. And he fell asleep again. Angel touched him a second time and said, eat, be, take care. He ends up in a cave and God speaks to Elijah through earth, wind, and fire. So you have a great wind, you have a great earthquake, you have great fire. And Elijah's not hearing it. And then he speaks in the small voice. In the midst of all this is chapter 19, verse 10. He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken their covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. And I am the only one left, and they seek my life. Look at your handout. That's the verse in Romans 8. I'm sorry, Romans 11. That's the verse that Paul pulls out of this story. He doesn't pull out the destruction of the, uh, the, the prophets. He doesn't pull out the extraordinary uh, miracle of the fire and the altar. He pulls out the depression of Elijah saying, all this is happening and no one is following and no one is listening. I am alone. I am by myself. Then it says God speaks to him. And then verse 14, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down the altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And even, and I even only, I only am left and they seek my life to take it away which is a repeat of verse 10, which is also in Romans 11. Then verse 4 of Romans 11, what is God's reply? You go down to verse 18 of 1 Kings 19. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, and all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. 
You might think you're the only one. Let me just say that's a rather narcissistic uh, approach to everything. It's not about you. And it's also not trusting God. Even in that, Elijah, the great prophet Elijah, who was at his darkest time, God says, I have 7,000 back home who trust me, who believe me, who follow me. I know who they are. I know them by name. You need to trust me. Verse 5. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Paul switches out of his Old Testament passage as the background and says, And today, right now, among you, in Rome is a remnant chosen by grace. Now the handout I have for you is from Chuck Swindoll's commentary. It's on page two of your handout. Um, is a chart that's created uh, in there showing the remnant over history, starting with the children of Adam, and then at one point God chooses Abraham versus the Chaldeans. Then God chooses Isaac instead of Ishmael. God chooses Jacob and not Esau. God chooses Judah, the tribe of Judah, the southern kingdom, and not Israel, the northern kingdom. And then he has Jesus and the Jews. Now, understand that very last one, Chuck Swindoll is from the dispensational perspective, which is why you see Jews versus Jesus here as a separation, just FYI. Where I find is fascinating on this chart are all the verses listed underneath in the Old Testament speaking about the remnant. You find it in Genesis, 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Micah, Zephaniah, Haggai, and Zechariah. All through the Old Testament, God promises that there will be a remnant. All throughout the entire of Scripture, entirety of Scripture, he promises, I will be your God and you will be my people. And then 90% of the people go, <laughs> and God, ah. all right, we'll save the remnant. This is how God foreknew. This is how God, God's choice. This is God's elect. That's how you view this. Not as God going, hmm. You wore the wrong color socks today. You're out. That isn't how God works. God works and looks at the heart. He talks about the circumcision uh, in, in, I think it's in Romans, or is it Galatians? Anyway, where it's talking about the circumcision, it's not the physical, it's the circumcision of the heart, which allows the Gentiles in, which we'll deal with next week. But... The remnant chosen by grace. There is always a remnant in God's story. I mean, you may have seen this before. It's not going to be news to some, most of you. But one way to remember grace is God's. Let me 
riches at Christ's expense. Try to, try to memorize that. Try to remember that. Because that is a definition of grace. It's unmerited favor. You didn't earn it. There's no way you can earn it. In fact, Paul even doubles down at it in verse 6. If it's by grace, it's no longer the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. <clears throat> Romans 4.4 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as what is due to him. But the one who does not work, but trusts in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And over in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul, writing about himself, said, I worked harder than any of them. But it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. <coughs> Commentator Henry Alford says, Let us remember when we say an election of grace, how much those words imply, namely, nothing short of the entire exclusion of all human work from the question. Let those two terms be regarded as and kept distinct from one another, and do not let us attempt to mix them and destroy the meaning of each. Grace is a gift, unmerited, unwarranted. And I have to say, Paul didn't deserve it. He was a nasty cuss. I mean, he, he was killing Christians. And God touched his heart and changed him. So verse 7, what then? Well, Israel had failed to obtain what it was seeking, and the elect, as we just discussed, did obtain it, and the rest were hardened. Ooh, hardened. Doggone it, there's that word again. Oh, that's so unfair. God shouldn't be hardening people's hearts. It's wrong for God to do that. That's not right. Let's be clear. It doesn't mean that God capriciously says nope to anyone who asks in faith. As I wrote, I don't know what I was thinking when I wrote this. I said, God is not a divine fig picker. <laughs> Plucks one, go, eh, tosses it over his shoulder. You look at a fig, you don't know if it's rotten on the inside. You can't see it. God can. I mean, after goodness sake, God sent his son to die on the cross for the sins of the entire world. Absolutely every human being. He elected Paul, the one who didn't deserve it. Could Paul have rejected Christ on the road to Damascus? Now, I don't know that we've ever thought about that question. That was an irresistible grace question, sorry. Uh, but could he have passed it off as a bad meal of beans the night before and he was hallucinating? We also don't know 
I, I'm totally being extra biblical here, so pardon me for this. But was God talking to Paul prior to that? And Paul just wasn't listening? I mean, we always we look at the result, but we don't see the rest. See, I mean I want to say that's extra biblical. He heard Stephen. Well, I was just gonna say he was there when Stephen was preaching and he saw that death and saw the glory. He was there. That testimony, you might wonder, of course the very next verse is that Paul got really, or Saul, got really exercised and started really getting vigorous after that. But was there that in the back of his mind? That God was using circumstances and people's testimonies? So when Paul would break into some Christian's home, arrest everyone as our persecuted brethren around the world experience when they come in and there you see someone going praise God thank you for coming you know I bless you and all your 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 efforts and but I, I still love you that's gotta that's gotta be mean something anyway sorry extra biblical sorry Here's what one writer put it this way. Hardening is in essence a judicial act of God for Israel's refusal to heed the word of God. God God's hardening, which we see in Exodus multiple times, in, in Deuteronomy, and we, it's even mentioned in John chapter 12, and re, was in response to them first hardening their, hardening their hearts. Let us be very clear in what Paul is not saying. He is not saying that divine hardening is the cause of Israel's rejection, but is the punishment for it. Their hardening was the result of their resisting the truth, just as Pharaoh's heart was hardened because he resisted the truth and first hardened his own heart. It's not surprising to see Pharaoh, a pagan idol-worshiping despot, hardening himself against the Lord. But it might come as a surprise that most of God's chosen people did the same thing. Indeed, most of Israel was hardened because they deserved it. And it was a just recompense for their sin. Verse 8 of Romans 11. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor. What a wonderful word. Um, we would add we would change the last two letters to ID <laughs> it gave them the spirit of stupid um, eyes that would not see ears that would not hear down to this very day he's quoting from Deuteronomy 29 and then oh, find my last page it's in here somewhere no I have my last verse in here. Oh, there it is. And then David says, quoting from Psalm 69, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. If you would find it fascinating to go to Psalm 
69, which is a very strong messianic psalm pointing toward Christ. And yet it's quoted here in Romans 11 as an example of how God's hardening and as God's justice for those who have rejected him. But God has not rejected the people. There's a remnant who is always there. Now whether you want to you know, extrapolate and say, well, that means the country of Israel or the, that, is, that the, the promises have swapped over to the Gentiles and the church. That's a completely different conversation. But I would say the text is fairly clear. God keeps his promises. Always will. And there's always a remnant. I mean, you, you look and you read these extraordinary stories around the world where people come in and try to wipe out the Christians. And then suddenly, five years later, there's a revival. How does that happen? It means there was a remnant that did not quit, that did not go up, go away. And it's always been that way. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together. Again, a fascinating text with so many twists and turns and an understanding of your whole story going back to the law, to the prophets, that you have a divine plan that we may not understand, but we trust in you for salvation for your people. In Jesus' name, amen.